Welcome to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Make sure you find the Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe and please rate and review the show. I'm your host, William Lou. I'm joined by co-host Blake Murphy. Raptors lose again last night with a uh, shocking percentage of uh, Celtic fans in the building. Celtic fans must travel well because, I don't know, man, there was at least like a, a six of the t- fans in there were Celtics fans, in my estimation. So I did not go to the game yesterday. Usually I'm at every home game, but coming off a weekend where I was working all weekend and with a couple more home games coming up, I was like, you know what? Two NFL playoff games on two, a good slate of West Coast NBA games. I- I'll just watch from home. Mm-hmm. And, and you would have thought it was a Celtics game. Uh, in the lower Buddy. bowl from on TV. Not not great. Not to shame any fans. Obviously, everyone's welcome at the game. You cheer for who you want to cheer for. But it was it it was very uh, 2012 feel. Like, we're not used to this anymore uh, with the Toronto Raptors where uh, an opposing fan base can show out like that at your game. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the Celtics have a massive history and massive fan base. And Jason Tatum is exciting to root for. Yeah. And the same number stars. of championships as the Raptors in our lifetimes, though. That is true. That is true. But you do hear endlessly about the 2008 Celtics. It's so much so that I even kind of enjoy listening to them. Like KG and, and Paul, uh, Paul Pierce have a podcast that they do on Showtime, and I actually listen to it quite regularly. And they always get like, it's it's like, let's get Kendrick Perkins on. Let, let's get Doc Rivers on. Let's talk about Matt Bonner for yeah. a whole bunch of time for some reason. I mean, KG is, a, is an incredible storyteller, and Paul yeah. Pierce does get lit quite often while he's on air, which I do feel like is a good combo. So, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, Raptors was again last night. Let's hang let's, on, hang on. We, we're oh, what's look. Up? Sorry, this is bad for the podcast and radio only audience. What's going on? But for the audience that can see us right now, Will Lou's suited up today. Oh, uh, you. What are we doing here? Well, f- first off, the suited up part is uh, has to start with the feet because I actually got these James Harden's on. Because I actually am hooping later tonight in my Tuesday run. So wait a second. You're uh, wearing the shoes that you'll hoop in later with your suit right now? I'm breaking them in now. Yeah, because I bought them over Christmas. Cheat up from the feet up. Oh, uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm wearing a suit because, you know, we have to uh, occasionally make some TV appearances. Not that this is not on TV, by the way. <laughs> Catches on TV it's right now. It's kind of on TV. Um, but I got to do something for Sports Center Central later today. So recording something about RJ Barrett, actually, uh, about how... He's really made himself quite efficient. And, you know, this is not something I was going to talk about too much, but maybe I'll save it for later in the show. But, yeah, I mean, it has been really nice watching him join the Raptors and, and cut out some of the more uh, toxic parts of his game, quote-unquote, to make himself not just toxic asset, but just an asset. Yeah, uh, 11 of 19 last night for RJ, 24-9-4. Yeah. and four. Um, One of the only guys, really, who had it going for the Raptors. Even though his, his three-ball didn't drop. Uh, either so maybe we'll, so everyone keep an eye out on Sportsnet Central later for that breakdown. From, ah, we'll tease it on this from show. Will on uh, on RJ. Uh, but yeah, man. So so the Raptors lose last night, one hundred five ninety six, and mm-hmm. RJ's a, a bright spot in it. But there weren't there were actually bright spots. But it's hard when you end up losing by nine and you have the worst shooting night in franchise history uh, to focus on the bright spots. But despite mm-hmm. shooting four of 32, 12 and a half percent. Uh, the Raptors were in this game until late with the Boston Celtics, who yes were down Jalen Brown, but they're also Really, really good. Probably yeah, the best team in the NBA so far this season through through 40 games here. Um, so what did you make of this one? Obviously, we'll get into some of the context of just how poorly they shot. Uh, we can have a laugh at, at some of the other poor shooting nights that they've had. This is something that literally it was only the 17th time in NBA history a team has shot that poorly <laughs> on threes on that volume of threes. So that is... You're killing me, Blake. You're killing we, me, man. We need a Dwayne Casey drop of make or miss league, mm. uh, Doug. But that's part of it. But the Raptors were in this game. So where did you land coming out of this one in terms of 
either disappointment that they couldn't take one off the Celtics when they were so close, encouragement that they actually played a good defensive game against the Celtics. Where did I, I did not listen to the post game mm-hmm. pod last night? Um, where did you land on on how those things kind of come out in the wash? Honestly, I, I would like to give them credit for playing better defense against the Celtics. Holding them to one hundred and five is a good number, but it always felt to me watching that game like the Celtics were in control the entire way, and they would uh, they would ramp their level up according to what the Raptors were doing. Like, it just had that kind of feel. Like, there were so many guys in the Celtics who could score for them. Um, you know, Tatum has an off night, and the Raptors did do a good job of running second defenders at him. Scotty did a good job guarding him one-on-one as well. She shoots 7 of 19 for 19 points. Ordinarily, that'd be enough to beat a Celtics team. But then they also have Chris Hasperzinkas, who goes to the foul line like six straight times to end the first half because the Raptors just can't c- cope with him having the ball in the middle of the floor, in the middle of the paint. Uh, Drew Holiday decides that he's a power forward, but also that he can shoot pull-up threes. Uh, and he has some contributions in the fourth quarter. Derek White, even though he wasn't great going downhill, he just seems to be an amazing shooter these days, 5 of 11 from three. And they got all this secondary scoring that it almost doesn't even matter. And again, like the Raptors were in this game and they were chasing and a couple of plays here or there might have flipped some momentum. I don't even know. To be honest, it just looked like two very different classes of teens to me, but what did you see from the game? Yeah, I felt similarly. And this was a night it's worth pointing out too, that yeah, you talk about, you know, the secondary scoring and that's it's balanced around the starting five there. Mm-hmm. They really didn't get much from the bench. This is a Boston Celtics bench that usually gives them some punch. Uh, Sam Hauser did hit a three, but otherwise was not yeah, super, was not, not super notable. He did. He did have five rebounds in 16 minutes. Um, but like O'Shea came in, gave them a little burst of energy, yeah. but that's basically it. Luke Cornett didn't play particularly well. Peyton Pritchard, I thought was awful. Uh, and still, the Celtics won the bench minutes very significantly. Now, for the Raptors, you're out Gary Trent. You're out Jakob Pertl, which shoots mm-hmm. Jonte Porter into the starting lineup. Um, you know, you don't have all your weapons there. But I do think it was notable. Jalen Brown's out, so Boston loses their top bench piece in Al Horford because he has to join the starting lineup. The bench guys don't shoot uh, a lot. And, and certainly, you know, Peyton Pritchard almost shot them out of those bench minutes and still they win those minutes really significantly. So that stood out. I think, you know, when you look at what the starting lineups accomplish, yeah, you knew Boston could turn it on, but it also really helped keep things close that in those transitions, like if you're going to upset a team that's better than you, those are usually the minutes you're going to do it in, right? It's like, Oh, mm-hmm. Sam Hauser, Luke Cornett, Peyton Pritchard are on the floor. This has got to be a big Chris Boucher game or Dennis is going to take over for a little bit. I actually thought Dennis was solid last night, but McDaniels gave them next to nothing again. Mm -hmm. Um, Boucher didn't really have a very good game. Thad Young worked really, really well as a passer, but he looked so much better when he was stepping in with those starters when Jonte kind of played his way out of that game. So the Raptors couldn't even match there. And that that's. That's tough, but this is a Celtics team that's really, really good. Um, so in terms of, you, you mentioned Porzingis kind of gave it to them for a little bit at the end of the first half. Quiet game overall for Porzingis. Mm. And a bit of a surprise to me with Jalen Brown out that they started out Horford. They went bigger. I, mm. I thought with what the Raptors do well and don't do well, uh, I thought that Boston might, you know, drop a Sam Hauser type into the starting lineup, keep Horford with the yeah. bench, really space the Raptors out. They instead went big. The Raptors started Jonte Porter. Um, what did you make of how the Raptors handled the Horford Porzingis of this. And I realize it's maybe a little odd to focus on two guys who only combined for 25 points and seven turnovers, uh, but it was a little different look than we're expecting. And one without Jakob Pertl that the Raptors really aren't well-equipped to take to, to, to handle really. Yeah. Um, I thought they gave the Raptors some huge problems defensively. Mm-hmm. Um, like when you look back at Pascal shooting five of 15 or Scotty shooting five of 12, like 
a lot Over of their eight sh- combined on threes too. They really yeah. did turn them into jump shooters. Which I mean, you know, realistically, this season between Pascal and Scotty, the two of them making eight threes um, is not even that much uh, above their season averages. But I think for me, it was you know they couldn't score over top of Horford and Porzingis's length. I think that Pascal actually, weirdly enough, has success when he goes against Derek White. He can even score over Drew Holiday. You got and ones against Holiday and Derek White at certain points in this game. But for Pascal, he had a slow start to this game, and a lot of it was, you know, while Horford contesting. And Horford's really good at contesting your shot without fouling you, mm-hmm. um, making you shoot high over the top of his length. And, you know, it, it's just not easy for Pascal to, to sort of get his offense against these bigger players. And then Scotty, I felt like, you know, it was a bit of a different mix. When he had it, there were certain moments where it was like eye-opening. Like, wow, he's going one-on-one against Jason Tatum, and he sets him up, and he spins the other way and gets in for a layup. It, yeah, if you stuff. can score on the sixth-best Celtic, Jason Tatum. Oh. You- <laughs> oh, man. We used to be able to do slander pods. Uh, we used to be a proper <laughs> podcast, I suppose. Uh, but, you know, there's also the moment late in the fourth quarter where he's against Chris Asperzingas one-on-one on the baseline, and not only does he blow past Asperzingas, he bodies him and then gets himself that space to get separation. But also over the balance of the game, I felt like, okay, there wasn't actually that much scoring intent or involvement from Scotty. So to me, I thought that, look, overall, I think Boston's rim protection was just really good, and that's the main reason why the Raptors you know, only scored 96 points. That and the fact that the Raptors couldn't shoot from three either. It's a bad combo, but still, they did a good job, the two of them. So we'll touch on the threes in just a second here. I keep teasing these awful stats, mostly because I don't want to get to them because they're really depressing. It's like a threat. We will talk about four Uh for 32. Um, But you kind of teed it up there. So Scotty ends this game 10 points on 16 used possessions. Mm -hmm. And we've talked, you and I, about how the usage rate isn't really the only thing to keep an eye on with Scotty because he gets involved in so many other ways. Only had two assists in this one. Had a couple of those hockey assists, I think, where a play Scotty made one or two passes down the line led to a bucket. Yeah, yeah. Um, but really not not a heavy involvement. And even Pascal, you know, used 19 possessions, only 17 points. So between those guys, you're talking about only 27 points and six assists and not particularly efficient. Um, some of this is Boston's length. Some of this is how sometimes they can invert things on your forwards by using White and Holiday's versatility to kind of dare your guys to shoot over them and, and like stay to the outside. Um, but how much of this will is, you know, Scotty and Pascal have to find a way and kind of push that themselves versus on a night where RJ and quickly get going a little bit because of what Boston's defense does let you do. They, they were... Weirdly enough, even though the, it's the defensive backcourt that gets all the the publicity, mm-hmm. they they told the Raptors basically, we're going to let your backcourt get going if it means we can shut off your two forwards. Yeah. How do the Raptors solve that if it comes up again? It won't come up again against Boston because this is their 0-4 against Boston. Now it's done for the season. Um, but if another team tries to do that, if another team is letting your guards go a little bit in order to turn off Siakam and Barnes, how much of that falls on those two guys individually and how much of that is the Raptors have to find more creative ways to, to get those guys involved? So it's definitely a bit of both. Um, I think in the case of both players right now for Pascal and Scotty, I think um, the coach needs to set like a more clear priority in terms of in coming into this game, we are really going to play through these guys. And I think that in previous games against Boston, we actually did see that. Um, I thought that, uh, for example, the game that they lost in, in Boston two, three weeks ago, that was right before they lost the next night to Detroit as well, unfortunately. Um, but in that game, Pascal and Scotty just took it and ran with it. And, and whatever, at that point, RJ and, and Emmanuel weren't there yet. It was still OG on the team. 
pressures on the team. So, you know, the balance of the team was a little bit different. But at the same time, you saw as the start of the season, Scotty was going, but Pascal wasn't going. Eventually, they got Pascal going. They started, and Scotty was also, you know, playing at a high level. And you saw more and more of an emphasis on getting them those touches uh, in the positions that they can score. Since the trade, I feel like the offense is more balanced out, which I, I don't have an issue with, especially because the offense has been flowing. However, it, it, when it gets tough, and eventually it will get tough, whether it's like you see a really good team like the Celtics or you are get into a play-in position, which honestly the Raptors are out of right now, which is super sad, but maybe they get into a play-in position and they got to take the game super seriously. In those type of games, I really would like to see them prioritize as much as possible to get it to their forwards, mostly because you feed the forwards and they get double teamed or whatever, they can then make the extra pass out. They're both really willing passers. Um, and so, yeah, I think in this case, you probably just needed to set up more clear hierarchy. The other thing too is just like, look, the Celtics are also pretty difficult to score on in the paint regardless, especially when they start their two centers. That's where your three-point shooter just has to come through for you. Like the Raptors shooting 432, like you're basically going to lose against any opponent if you do that. Um, so it's a bit of both. And then I do think on Scotty's part, because he does handle the ball a lot more. Like I feel like Pascal has the ball in positions to score, but doesn't handle it as much. Scotty runs a lot of the offense for you. Like it's, it's also up to him. Sometimes I'm just like, you can call your own number in those positions. Like I, I don't think anybody would come on the program or go in the post game or his teammates will be upset if like Scotty runs with it. Like Darko said in his infamous rant, he's going to be the face of this league. Uh, Masai has said it, you know, both. Scotty Barnes. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Masai has also talked about it in his press conferences or when he does, you know, the, the, the TV hits on Giants of Africa night, for example, or even the most recent open gym clip, we're going to build around Scotty. So whatever Scotty wants to take in any scenario, we're kind of cool with it. Like we'll live with an over-aggressive version of Scotty. I just feel like he hasn't really looked for his shot as much in a game like last night. And again, you can always have this debate because I know this is going to become one of those things where it's like, you know, you're blaming Scotty or this and that. No, I, I just think that like he has ultimate green light, ultimate permission to take whatever it, shots. It's also one of the biggest challenges that you're going to want to track and watch him learn mm -hmm. as he emerges as a star is like, these are the things guys have to figure out. It's not a criticism to say, hey, you weren't crazy aggressive. You were trying to make the right reads, try to keep your teammates yeah. involved, trying to take what the defense gave you. Like, it's not a criticism. It's just part of learning to be a star in the league is mm -hmm. finding out when that's the right approach and when it's like, damn, we, we need a bucket. We're four for 32 mm -hmm. on, uh, on threes. You want to pivot there now? Yeah, well, I mean, what's there to say? Oh, I've these got guys? lots to say. All right, go ahead, go ahead. So the Raptors shot four for 32. On threes last night, that is a whopping 12.5%. It is, as I mentioned earlier, only the 17th time in NBA history mm -hmm. that a team has shot that poorly on that volume of threes. Uh, a couple teams have tied it. Only one of those teams has ever won a game, and it was the uh, Rockets era Harden, or the Harden era Rockets, rather, mm -hmm. where he had like a 40-point game, and everyone he kicked it out to uh, missed everything. The Rockets also shot 72% on twos in that game. Okay. So that's how they uh, they beat the Pelicans. A lot of pancakes with the Pancake that. Mamba. Yes. Um, yeah. So teams, uh, yeah, like one in 25 when they shoot uh, close to this bad on this percentage. Mm. Now, you might have watched that game and been like, four for 32. Is that the worst Raptors shooting game? I, I seem to remember one against Miami okay. the other year where it was unwatchably bad. 
And you're right. That did happen in 2019, 2020, uh, before the pandemic set in, actually. So this is when the Raptors were still... This actually like, caused the pandemic. Yeah. This, this, this is uh, the game. We found it, it got so cold that bacteria could travel too easy. Uh, I don't know the science behind that. But the Raptors had shot uh, 6 of 42 against Miami. <laughs> yeah, I remember that game. They lost that game 84 to 76. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That is uh, ridiculous. But that was much better than in this one. So within that... You know, I, every time the Raptors shoot this poorly or anyone shoots this poorly, I see, I get a lot of tweets on Twitter. It's like, why do they keep shooting threes then? Mm. And that's a valid question. Part of the answer is this is the NBA in 2024, and the Celtics shoot more threes than anyone in the league, so you got to keep up. Mm. You're not going to win a three-versus-two game for that long. But you could turn it and, and go inside the arc a little bit more, which is kind of what we're talking about with Pascal yeah, and Scotty. Yeah. You could also get into, well, were these good threes or were they bad threes? The Raptors shot more corner threes last night yeah. than almost any team has taken the entire NBA this year. Yeah. I thought they were good looks. They were good looks from good spots. They went one for 17 in the corners. Yeah. See, like an average game should be like seven of 17. Maybe for the Raptors, an average game seven of 17. The yeah. average game for the Celtics could be like nine of 17 yeah. from the corners. So if you shoot even, yeah. we're not even talking about the difference in this game is bad shooting to good shooting. It's bad mm -hmm. shooting to like okay shooting. So they went one for 17 in the corners. 22 of their threes were classified as wide yep. open by NBA.com. So this is another thing. Are you taking good threes? Mm -hmm. Well, if they're all contested looks, and sure, the Raptors went 0 for 10 when their threes were at least semi-contested. But that means they also went 4 for 22 on wide open threes, which oh, is still man. just 18%. Now, this is a night where they didn't have Gary Trent Jr., um, you know, they don't have, they didn't have Yak, who is not a three-point shooter, but he man helps you manipulate space with the pick <laughs> and roll. I've seen Yak take and, a one-handed three in this kind of I game. Mean, he might have been their, their best bet here. No Otto Porter, no Grady uh -huh, Dick yeah. in this one. Um, man, what do you, I guess there's nothing to say about it other yeah. than they won't shoot that badly again because mm -hmm. it's, it's never happened. They do own three of the worst three-point shooting performances in the entire NBA this year. But yeah. I guess my natural question, and we'll talk about this more tomorrow, is are the Celtics going to play zone 100% of possessions tomorrow? Or not the Celtics, the Heat, rather? Um, honestly, probably. Like, uh, First off, the zone's going to be good because it's going to take Pascal and Scotty out of their regular rhythm in terms of you know their ability to get downhill. Pascal, I think, in particular. Um, and then, yeah, once you break that up, like the Raptors are inconsistent from the outside. Like It's just something that has been the case for this team for a long time. Um, it's gotten worse and worse, the, the the less and less they've had shooters. Since the trade, they've actually been pretty decent from three these last two games, notwithstanding, against Utah. And against, actually, even the Utah game, they hit a lot of threes. Never mind. So basically, just this one, they couldn't hit threes. Um, I do think that, yeah, obviously, quickly coming in is a really, really good shooter. Unfortunately, he was also 2 of 7 last night. RJ has done well shooting threes with the Raptors, although he went 0-4 last night. Um, but I think he might still be over 40% as a Raptor. Pascal's been hot, red hot recently, and then he goes 0 for 6, and some of the looks don't even look particularly close on some of those. They also had a wide open Thad Young in the corner at one point, and I don't know, man. It's not like Thad Young's like a noted corner specialist, but still, like, he slingshotted that thing, like, straight over the rim. It was a wild air ball, It was also, ball, like, it, we don't have tracking data that's this specific. Uh -huh. We don't have the Hawkeye system yet. Yeah. It might have been the most open a corner three's been in the entire NBA yeah. this year. Maybe in NBA history. Yeah, they were like, man, just let that hit this three, you know? Um, and, and yeah, he he shot, like, a Chris Bassett uh, curveball. Wow. Um, deep Shout cut. out to Chris Bassett. Deep, deep cut. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, this is just part of the, the makeup of the team, you know? Like, the, they can come into a game, and they can lose for the simple fact that Derek White made more threes than their whole entire team. Okay. 
So I want to do two quick pieces of, of trivia for you before we talk to Jake Fisher of Yahoo Sports. And we'll come back to some of the more specific stuff uh, from this game okay. through, throughout the show as well. And the question of will they ever win in the Atlantic Division? <laughs> I'm uh, loving this one. Yep. So this, the Raptors-Heat game from 2019-2020 when they lost 84-76. to Yeah, I remember that game. Uh, totally remember that game. So I remember I did... I wrote about it for The Athletic, uh-huh. and I did such a good breakdown of how good Miami zone was and why the mm. Raptors struggled yeah, exactly. with this stuff. Might have been my least read article in the history of my time at The Athletic because oh, wow. nobody wanted to talk about that game or read about that game. So they shot 32 threes in that one. Kyle went two for 12. Fred mm. went one for 11. OG went two for five. Can you come up with the rest of the, what are we looking at here? One for 14. One for 14. Okay, so Pascal probably missed one. Pascal was out this game. Oh, he was out this game. Yeah. Okay, interesting, interesting. Pascal's out. Um, they probably had Serge miss one. He missed four. Missed four. Was Mark healthy? He was not. Mark was not healthy. Pascal was not healthy. So... There was a... Who comes into the starting five at that point? Rondé? Did Rondé miss one? Rondé didn't shoot one. He did play 30 minutes, though. Uh, This was like a big Rondé being the guy who flashes to the nail to try to pass the cutters and stuff. Norm? Um, Norm did not play this game either. You see how they shot six for 32. Uh, Wow. Okay, Terrence Davis was 0 for 5. Patrick McCaw started and went 1 for 8 overall and 1 for 4 on threes. Uh, And then Stanley Johnson missed one. Stanley Johnson. So the only other night... That was still a good team, though. That was still a good team. The only other night in Raptors history where they really have a case on any volume to say, hey, we shot worse than this. They went three for 27 uh, way back in 1997 against the Orlando Magic. So this Mm. is almost prehistoric era. Now, three for 27 is a worse percentage than last night, but it's not the same volume, so it didn't make our cutoffs for worst night ever. In that game, Doug Christie went three for 10. He hit all of their threes. Everyone else combined to go 0 for 17. I'm going to read to you who took the three. All right, let's go. Sean Respert, 0 for 6. Mm. He's come up on the show in two weeks in a row. Yeah, congratulations to you, Sean. Damon went 0 for 4. All right. Popeye Jones, 0 for 2. Carlos Rogers, 0 for 2. Sharon Wright, John Long, Martin Lewis, all 0 for 1. I definitely definitely know like four of those guys. Who they play for. Apparently, the Toronto Raptors on the worst shooting night in franchise history. That was uh, 97-98. I didn't know they shot that many threes in a 97 uh, Sorry, 96-97. Yeah, no, I just didn't think they shot that many threes in a game in, 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 in 97. It's a lot. Um, yeah. They lost that game by 36 points. Yeah. Well, uh, you know. The Raptors that year, what did they take? They averaged 23-point attempts per game. Okay. All right. Hmm. It, must, it feels like on the high end because I always think of that 90s era as like guys still taking like 10 threes. Yeah, they, that was the sixth most threes in the NBA. You're right. That makes about sense. Okay. Um. I guess my thinking of watching last night's game is, do you think the Raptors would have been better as a 90s team? This exact Raptors team. Oh, Vision 6-9 yeah. in general, is a that's 90s basketball. Like okay, You'll be yeah. able to play more physical defensively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The like the fewer teams are taking threes, and if you take sure. them, they're wide open. You're you're working more your pick-and-pop stuff for like 18-footers. Yeah. Yeah. Like the last two and a half years of Raptors basketball is much better suited for I was going to say, like, you, you, put, you put this version of Raptors into that 90s era, then Pascal's taking like 10 mid-range pull-ups a game and yeah. making four and Jakob, making the all-star game Jakob off of that. has stands <laughs> if Jakob, he's playing in the 90s. Yaku give me a solid 10 and 10 every night. Um, um, okay, yeah. so sorry, last question on this before, and we can come back to this after, but... Um, RJ would be sick in the 90s too, but I feel oh, like. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
Um, when are the Raptors going to win in the Atlantic division? They're now over 10, <laughs> the worst division record I in Raptors history in 97, 98. So after the year that we were just talking about, yeah. they went two and 26 in division. Yo, that's, that's, that shouldn't be possible, man. No, it's, I mean, possible. it's not possible now because yes, you just don't yeah. play your division that many times. They've got six games left, but they're 0 and 10 right now. Yeah. Um, wow. So Knicks. At Knicks, home. Oh, sorry, Knicks in New York this in weekend. In New York will be really difficult. I mean, I just feel like the Knicks have hit every three against the Raptors. Like, that's why the Knicks have beaten the Raptors the last couple of meetings. Brooklyn at home, the Raptors should win. Yeah, and they've got Brooklyn at home twice. Yeah. Then but they play they the don't. Knicks at home, Philly at home, and then they Brooklyn on the road toward yeah. the end of the season. So two for 26 means you got to at least go, you know, two and 14 here to avoid the worst divisional record in franchise history. Yeah, I think what's scary about this to me watching the game was just like, I don't see a way for the Raptors moving forward to like beat the Celtics or to beat the Sixers. I mean, like, you had those probably teams, the like, best defensive game you're going to have against the Celtics. That's level. what I mean. But you've also had no Jalen Brown. You also had the last game the Raptors played them. No Chris Tapps. Yeah. Uh, no, I think Al Horford was out for that one too. There's a lot of Sam so, yeah. Hauser. Yeah, right. And then no Tatum in that one. And the Raptors lost that one. So, like, they're at the point where it's like, even if they don't, they play with one hand tied behind their back, they'll still beat you. Just in the same way that I don't think the Raptors have any chance to beat the Sixers either. And it's just unfortunate because, again, these are two teams that you don't measure yourself up with them because you know you're much worse than them, but you still want a chance to upset them. You know, like, you still had these big upset type of wins in the past, and that just feels like it's gone. And the way you do that generally is with hot three-point shooting. They didn't have that last night. Uh, We got to take a break. Jake Fisher uh, from Yahoo Sports on the other side. Okay, let's take that break. I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm Blake Murphy alongside William Liu. A little earlier today, we spoke with Jake Fisher, senior NBA reporter at Yahoo Sports. Here is that interview. Joined now by Jake Fisher, senior NBA reporter at Yahoo Sports, author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Excellent, excellent book. Uh, Before we get into that, though, Jake, got to say, man, welcome, first of all. Second, sorry about your birds last night. (laughs) Yeah, I was debating which hat to put on before we recorded, and the Kelly Green one over there is going to go away for a little while, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Shout out to Jason Kelsey though. That's a that's a hell of a career that he's had. He like a recurring character on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which he was yeah. probably the dream anyway. I saw this great, awful announcing tweet today. That was that was something to the effect of uh, uh, like popular podcast host quits day job. So he's going to have a nice little uh, second chapter, I think. Yeah, uh, that should be good for him. Uh, On the basketball side, so obviously we're going to talk. We're three weeks out from the trade deadline. We'll talk some Raptors stuff. But I did mention off the top, in addition to no cap room and all the reporting at Yahoo Sports, you did write uh, Built to Lose, which is a really, really excellent look at the NBA and how kind of tanking, you know, teams bottoming out or not caring about winning to improve their draft stock uh, has been kind of, not the story of the last decade or so of the NBA, but a big one. Now that came out in 2021. Uh, do you, are you feeling like, as you see this year play out with like five teams, like four teams who are historically bad, are you like, damn, I should have, should have waited an extra couple years here. 
well, maybe if I waited extra a couple extra years, my profile's a bit bigger. I wouldn't be trying to sell it two years later. So that's that's probably the bigger uh, bigger concern. But no, I mean, I think the most interesting thing to me was that the time period I covered, which was really 2013 to 2016, like the window there was when all these analytical minded executives like Sam Hinkey and Rob Hennigan and Ryan McDonough and Pete D'Alessandro, you know, the nerds that were coming to crash the basketball life or fraternity. Like that was, I think, I think the strategy came hand in hand with the rise of those types of thinkers around the league. And like, we're really not seeing that war anymore, but like the theory and the idea still exists. So I just think it kind of is the fact to your point, the fact that it's still going on. I think the data and the research that backed up the fact that most of these NBA champions end up having players, a lot of players who are drafted in the top five, that it was solid to the point where the strategy persists, even though all those GMs I just mentioned might not ever run a team again. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. And that's a hard part of the strategy, right? Is like if your strategy is built extremely long-term and on Yes, better probabilities, but still low probabilistic outcomes. Uh, yeah, if, if it works, you might not be there to enjoy it like Hinky in uh, in Philadelphia. Um, yeah, you wonder, you know, the Spurs are probably fine. Buford can probably, uh, <laughs> you know, take his time now that they've got Wemby. But but you do wonder, you know, with, with Weaver in Detroit, he gets Cade through the lottery win, and now they're kind of in this place again. How long does he get to see it out? Um, so we are looking at a year where Detroit, Washington, San Antonio, Charlotte, are all historically bad, um, some of them historically bad by record and losing streaks, some by point differential. What do you think, or, or not even what do you think, in, in reporting out this book and writing it, what is the league's take on this? Like, obviously, they they probably don't love that winning is devalued in certain parts of the standings, but do they just kind of accept it as, that's oh, a necessary part of, of having competitive, you know, 20 competitive teams at the top, or are they kind of always in the mode of trying to find ways to curb this? You know, from a numerical standpoint, there's just going to be a team that wins 20 games every year. That's how the cookie is going to crumble and the pie is going to get cut. Like there's just never going to be, a league where every single team is 41 and 41. That's just not really possible. And I think the league has kind of accepted that they just don't want it to be a national talking point of how it's embarrassing, which I, I really was thinking about the difference between the Pistons streak when it was appointment viewing and everyone on Twitter was tuning in and kind of even like rooting for the Pistons to win and not, uh, break that record. Like it wasn't a black eye on the league, as opposed to when the Sixers were compiling loss after loss, it was being considered this like affront to morals and competition and sportsmanship and like all of mankind. And that's the stuff I think the league has a problem with because, you know, the Pistons weren't outwardly trying to do this. The Pistons had thoughts that they could be like Orlando and Houston this year, or even, in the mold of where Toronto is like something that's not in the bottom, but not necessarily in the playoff picture either. Like, I think they were hoping to just not be at the very, very bottom where they've been for years. The fact that Philly was so outward and like audacious about what the plan was and like not really apologizing for it, not 
talking to the media when Jalil Okafor gets arrested for getting in a fight in Boston like many, many years ago. That's the type of stuff I think the league cares. They care about like the image and the sanctity of the logo, just like the NFL with the shield that I think like the morals that follow um, like the conversation on a day-to-day level. Yeah, the NBA wants uh, more Rob Lowe's out there wearing just the NFL uh, hat. They want him to be against <laughs> in that. Um, so you mentioned that Detroit had yeah. kind of hoped this year to be maybe in Toronto's tier of, you're not disgustingly bad, but you're just kind of bad. And yeah. the Raptors didn't really want to be there either. I think they thought they could be no. you know, a 500 team. Obviously, that that hasn't turned out this way. The Raptors actually right now in the standings are in the exact same spot they were in in the Tampa tank season when they ended up getting some lottery fortune and jumping up to get Scotty Barnes. Now, they don't have their own pick this year. Um, They they only get it if it's in the top six. So even if you bought them out, uh, you're not catching those teams that we talked about. You are still only, you know, like best case scenario, two-thirds chance to keep your pick. You're probably better off just conveying it unless you jump to like one or two in the lottery. So the Raptors are in this weird spot where – Maybe we didn't uh, expect them to be here. They jumped the market early. One of the rare holiday season trades. We almost never get trades in December in the NBA. They trade OG Ananobi for Emmanuel Quickly and RJ Barrett in, in a five-player deal. Now, we've had enough time for this to settle in. OG's obviously been great for the Knicks. The Raptors haven't been great, but RJ and Quickly look like good fits. Um, before we kind of look forward, in your conversations with people around the league, what, what was the response to that trade? Were people a little surprised it happened early, that, that the Raptors were able to get a quickly type for OG and an OB? Um, what were the, kind of the reverberations there? Yeah, I think the surprise was of the timing for sure. That was number one. Not just that it was on a Saturday morning of a holiday weekend to, to boot. I think it was the fact that it was so short and, and so quickly after the G League showcase in Orlando the week before where executives from all over the league for people on uninitiated go and watch every team from the G league compete and kind of like round Robin type stuff. There's a tournament that goes on too, but it's mainly for guys to evaluate G league talent for two ways and 10 day call-ups, but also it's the unofficial start of trade season where all those guys are there and talking and chatting. And definitely there was some rumblings that Toronto and New York were talking about OG and that Toronto was kind of, doing like a last gauge of the market, but I didn't seem like it was going to happen right away. And I think also other teams around the league have been conditioned to Toronto the last couple of deadlines, sending out a lot of feelers, putting a lot of, you know, lines in the water and then waiting and waiting and waiting until the final day to do something to the point where when it comes across the wire, it definitely shocked a lot of people that it happened so early. And I also think it, people were generally surprised at what the price point was based off of the fact that in years past, it seemed like Toronto was just curious about how many draft picks that these guys could net back. But now with the dust settled to your point of how you frame the question, the way I'm looking at it and from conversations I've had with some people, it does make sense that I'm not necessarily saying this is the exact approach Toronto did, but it does make sense if Toronto last deadline and this summer understood that the the ballpark and and the market for OG was basically three and a half, you know, four first round picks. And then they determined this season, well, we're not looking for a rebuild. We want to retool. We want to get back young players with upside and already established some type of pedigree in this league. When you compute, what R.J. Barrett and the 31st pick in the draft that is basically 
more valuable than like the 27th through 30th pick based off of the CBA restrictions that come with first rounders and Emmanuel quickly. That's right along the four first round pick, you know, gargantuan offers that we heard the Raptors were batting away. So I do think the price point makes a lot of sense, especially if you're high on quickly RJ, if you, if you talk to 10 scouts in the league, you'll get 10 different opinions. Some, some, you know, from the worst end of the scale saying that he's like a Ben Simmons type contract and you're going to have to pay to get off of him. Or you have, you know, his biggest supporters who think he's going to be, you know, a real you know top three, top four contributor on a winning team. I think he'll probably most likely net out as like a Harrison Barnes, but that's the case. That's a really strong career, you know, and to get him on a long-term deal that right now seems like a big number, but come two, three years, if the TV deal is what is promised, it'll be very, very movable at that point in time when he's in his prime. I think Toronto did pretty well. I just think, yeah, the timing and the initial sticker shock was not exactly what people in the NBA were expecting. The timing certainly caught me off guard on that holiday weekend, uh, emergency shows and all that. But it was uh, it was a lot of fun. And like for our purposes, I mean, my, uh, mine with the the show with Will and, and Alex and for yours, I'm sure. It, hey, you you take that trade deadline window of, of content and conversation points. You stretch it up to like six. Oh, weeks. yeah. That's a blessing. Um, so we are three weeks and change out from the actual trade deadline now. Um, so let's stay on the Raptors for for a moment. Pascal Siakam, one of the biggest names around all of basketball. I apologize. I know you've been asked about this a bunch. You had a great hit on the J.D. Bunkus podcast last week here on Sportsnet. Uh, but I'll ask you again what the latest that you're hearing on the Pascal Siakam front is. Yeah, you know, every every Monday, Tuesday, when I come back from my weekend hole that I go into out of the NBA world and I get back on the phone, I'm like ready for the action. And again, this week, it has so far been quiet. And I think the two things that remain the same are that Pascal and DeJounte Murray are, by all accounts, going to be the two best players available at this deadline. Zach Levine... You can throw him in that mix, but the fact that his deal is so gargantuan with his injury history and his lack of proven ability to impact winning, the market for him seems microscopic if existent at all. So that's why you're going to continue to hear all this talk about Pascal and DeJounte. And Pascal's situation is even more challenging, I think, than Zach Levine's because like, you know what you would be getting with Zach Levine in terms of the contract. Obviously, Pascal, for anyone who's been paying attention, his situation is a total question mark because any team such as Sacramento or Indiana or Dallas, I mean, Detroit was a team I've heard a bunch, and they just made a smaller deal that is showing that they're thinking about this summer to get massive amounts of cap space. Um, I think they can up, get upwards of $66 million now after the little trade with Mike Muscala and uh, Danilo Gallinari coming in for Isaiah Livers and um, uh, Marvin Bagley. Like, those teams with space, Indiana, Detroit, and then a boogeyman that always gets mentioned is Philadelphia with, obviously, Pascal's old coach and Nick Nurse. And, like, it's funny. Talk to one person. This is how the NBA rumor mill works. Talk to one person, him and Nurse are – Best buddies, they can't wait to get back together. Talk to another one, they hate each other, they'll never want to work, work together ever again. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that doesn't stop. I mean, 
it's not it's not like the Sixers are calling around and telling everyone, hey, by the way, like we're absolutely going to be offering Pascal this summer. All, all these things, though, are factors that teams have to be considering in their like like they're collecting data points just like you and I are to make their decisions. And what it all boils down to is it's going to be very difficult for any team trading for Pascal to be assured that they will be signing him long term after giving up valuable assets for him now, especially for a team like the Pacers or the Pistons that are going to have plenty of room. I mean, the, the Sixers have pretty much made it very clear from my understanding that they're not a team to consider for Pascal on the trade market right now. So that's another one that you could say like, all right, well, take another bidder in theory that's not going to be willing to furnish Toronto with an Emmanuel quickly RJ Barrett type return. So at this point, I am skeptical that teams are going to be able are going to be willing to give that type of value back to Toronto that clearly the Raptors are looking at just with the fear that it'll be a, a, a you know, four month rental. And to me, it seems like right now it's going to be a matter of Toronto determining what's their lowest threshold that they're willing to move him for at the end of the day, more than anything else. Yeah, and we've heard, you know, the package kicked around of Harrison Barnes, Kevin Herter, and Davion Mitchell, maybe with a pick in there. And if that's not enough, who knows? Maybe they circle back to it on February 8th. And I think part of the thinking here with why this is dragged on and why we get so many weeks of, well, he won't sign here. Well, hold up. Maybe they're in, maybe they're out. Is that, yeah, the OG thing, it was fun that it jumped the timeline. But usually this is the time of year for all this posturing. Things don't happen yet. Um, so there's obviously uh, some time here for teams to still posture. I, I guess my only question out of that, because I mean, what you're saying makes sense. It, it falls in line with the collective bargaining agreement and what we know about how teams operate within the cap, where we missed the window for Pascal to be able to extend with the team on a contract that he would actually sign. He can only do this tiny extension that, that he's probably not going to be interested in. Um, and there are bird rights, which matter if you're a team getting Pascal that's already over the cap. But if you're a cap space team that thinks you could just sign him in the offseason, that like, why would you give up it? You know, if you're indie, why would you put your Jairus Walker on the on the table if you think you don't have to in the summer? Um, I get the other point of this is when we're talking about Toronto's lowest threshold, I wonder how much you believe or how much people around the league seem to believe that, you know, if we're talking about what Toronto's threshold is, it's not trade Pascal for the best possible deal or lose him for nothing. There is also this possibility that the Raptors kind of continue to put out there that we could also just extend him or re-sign him. Mm -hmm. And the re-signing in the offseason, I don't know what my appetite would be for them, for that, for them after that's the game they played with Fred Van Bleed and thought, well, Bird Wright sign and trade as a as a last ditch effort. And then he walks away for nothing. Um, it could be really tough to run that back a second summer in a row. But what is the league set? Like, does does the league seem to feel the Raptors are bluffing with that option to go back and extend Pascal, given how this relationship has been handled the last little bit? Or do people think that that's, you know, a legitimate option the Raptors could uh, could pivot to on February 9th, say? Yeah, no, I think, look, if it's February 9th, even before that, if it's February 8th at 2 p.m. Eastern time, and the Raptors don't have anything that they think is actually moving the needle for them as a franchise, it's going to be like borderline irresponsible for them not to try to do that from everything you just said about trying to not recreate the missteps with Fred Van Vliet a year ago. And 
if we look at this objectively and look at this from like a 360 you know degree 300 foot view whatever if the raptors gave pascal without any hesitancy this four-year max extension that he could have signed this summer i don't think we're even having this conversation to nope. begin with so if they if they were to put that on the table right now i don't know what the total number is but i think without a doubt from a camp and a side of the equation with Pascal's, you know, crew, let's say, like, I think they have to have that conversation. They have to be willing to listen and be amenable for it too. Cause it does seem like money and long-term money is the driving priority for Pascal's camp at this point with like OG. I do think he wanted to find a position on a team that is absolutely in a winning type environment where he could continue to prove his value and earn from that uh, realm of the marketplace being that he's more of a player that gets rewarded when you're in a winning environment than just like has the flashy lead ball handling type stuff that someone like Pascal can really point to, I mean, Pascal can have a two week stretch where he looks like an all-star in the snap of his fingers. And all of a sudden people are like, Oh, I don't think OG Ananobi like is that type of impending free agent that like getting to a place now that makes sense, I think was always a more realistic outcome because he is more plug and play too. Like with Pascal, I do think that the fit makes it more of a challenge from a team side and also more of a challenge for him to get that money. And that money does seem to be it. Like I've been saying, like that does seem to be the, the ruling factor in, in all of their decision-making. Uh, Jake, uh, we could go around the NBA, but I don't want to take up too, too much of your time. Before we let you go, though, uh, you had a great piece last week at Yahoo Sports on Dennis Schroeder, how Dennis Schroeder evolved into a steadying force for the unsettled Raptors. Um, there's been obviously a change in role for Dennis Schroeder going from being the MVP of the World Cup to just the starter with the Raptors, now to a key bench piece for the Raptors. Um, I know that this, in reading that, I, I got the sense that you kind of had the idea of this story and started piecing it together back when you were covering the World Cup on the ground. Um, what have you learned uh, about Dennis Schroeder from World Cup to now and kind of reporting that piece out? Yeah, well, the first thing, I did a bad job of like clarifying that that 484 number that got stapled to his head with the Lakers was never really there. Like from what I was told, he only ever really got a two-year offer from LA. But like the fact that there was this notion that he – turn that down, I think has followed him and was like a shadow that he had to shake for a long time to the point where that first season he just signed for the mid-level, which um, compared to the 20 AAV that he was looking for at 6 million was a pretty you know precipitous decline. And the year after that and in Boston, he gets traded to Houston. He's a minimum player when he's with Germany at Eurobasket uh, last summer, not this past one where you know he finally gets with the lakers and figures it all out helps him to the western conference finals it was so cool to see him in manila on that gold cup floor or gold gold medal floor of the world cup where his teammates like fully like rode behind him he it doesn't matter if franz wagner is like this top you know rising all-star type prospect in orlando like that whole team rallied behind Dennis. He was their their lifeblood and their heartbeat. And it just, I just saw like a dad with his kids celebrating on the floor, which, you know, 
is a pretty standard image when you see the confetti falling on a TV broadcast. But like for him to be there, when go back to his Atlanta days, he was kind of like cast as this like brooding, unsatisfied uh, teenager. Like all this stuff to be leading up to where he is, this kind of elder statesman that Darko Ryakovich. I don't want to say handpicked, but like definitely really valued him in particular to come in to help be some type of culture starter in his first year with Toronto. It really is like a remarkable rise and kind of 360 of a of a character arc for a player to to be at. So I wanted to highlight it. And uh it was just it was I think validating for my thought of the story, but also just like for the goodness of people to just like have had a nice conversation with him at his locker after a Nets game in November and he just was very nice and chatty and wanted to have a good conversation with me he's on the Raptor show with me and Will Lou every week he's actually on right after you today so uh so we'll, we'll end it here with some nice thoughts on uh on Dennis Schroeder uh Jake Fisher built to lose Yahoo Sports the no cap pod uh keep up all the great work man thanks for taking the time out thank you so much Blake all right that was Blake Murphy's interview with uh Jake Fisher Appreciate Jake Fisher for coming on the program. You know what? Because we have to head to a break. Um, we will discuss a lot of what he said because a lot of interesting takeaways and and we'll get to those in segment four. What he talked about Pascal and, and you know, Philadelphia is the boogeyman. I mean, Philadelphia is the boogeyman. I really don't want to see him ever end up there. Uh, but I also thought it was interesting because we're going to get Dennis uh, on the program after this break. It's interesting that he did bring up the fact that that $84 million figure was never actually on the table, but it did follow him around. Like that number was just like... He got clowned for it. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it's... This is uh, the reporting game, apparently. The reporting game is like, I mean, whatever. It's a bigger conversation, but still, I I think uh, it's good to at least have that kind of clarity. It's not going to change anything, but... um, And shout out to Jake. That was a great piece on Dennis. It was. So we're going to take this break. We're going to come back with Dennis Schroeder uh, on The Raptor Show. But in the meantime, I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsline Radio Network. Download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptors show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Will Lou. Can be joined by co-host Blake Murphy. We will have Dennis Shooter on at some point. Our producers are working hard behind the scenes to uh, get him logged on to the Zoom so we can ask him things like, how dare you gift Jason Tatum a jersey uh, with uh, well wishes that you guys win the championship. I mean, it's a little awkward. I can't lie to you. And we will ask Dennis about it too. Uh, but I'm also seeing the reaction to it. And uh, I do feel like if the Raptors had won, uh, the reaction would be totally different. But they lost. So people are in a bad mood. And they see something like this, they don't want to see it. Totally valid, but yeah. Like, what do you think? Uh, yeah, at the risk of saying this right as uh, Dennis comes on, <laughs> um, is this the first that people realize the Raptors probably aren't going to win the championship this year? It's a devastating... No, I mean, 
I don't think it's that. I mean, I just think that, like, look, if for a division... Yeah, I get it. Rival-ish. Yeah, I mean, rival... I, I feel you, a certain way about the Celtics as well. You're not, Dennis, by the way, you're not a division rival when you're 0-10 against the whole yeah. division, man. Yeah, there's rivals <laughs> they, and then there's other things. They're giving us a collective Lebronto is what the rest of the Atlantic division is doing. But, yeah, um, yeah I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, I I did notice before the game, you know, um, at one point Tatum came out and I think he made him a headphones on or something, but Dennis went over to him and he was like, yo, what's up, big time? He's like, oh, you got new shoes on? Like, you know, you got your own signature shoes, you can't talk to me? But no, they, they did chop it up quite a bit before the game as well. So, I mean, I think they're just close, that's all, you know? Like, he's he's had a lot of former teammates um, who will go on to be, like, all-stars and actually wanted to do that with Dennis as well, just get him to... I mean, first of all, I don't know if you'll go for it, but at least maybe just even use that as a chance to talk about some of the former teammates he's had because if he were to draft just a former, uh, like a roster of five players that he would play with uh, of his former teammates, it, it's a quite an impressive list. Like, he, obviously, LeBron will be on that list, but a lot of other guys. Like, Shea's not guaranteed to be on that list. You know what I mean? Nah, like Shea's on that list. Um, uh, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook. Uh, I mean, I don't know, man. I don't know. I mean, look, I, I would have him on that list. There's, Cur there's right MVPs and be. Hall of Famers on that list. And still, yeah. Shea's cooler to play with. Uh, fair enough. But uh, um, we'll get to that. But Also, I guess the question would then be in your hypothetical here. Mm -hmm. Is Dennis in the lineup? Because then there's oh, no yeah. then there's no Shea Sorry, or Chris Dennis. Paul or Russell Westbrook. I, I, I benched you on your, own, <laughs> on your own team once again. He could be a really good six man for these guys. Yeah, um, yeah, but okay. Going back to the interview that you just did with Jake, um, you know, it, it was really interesting to hear about just about the trade speculation. I think my question to that is just to how much of that affects the players, right? Because you just see it on social media every single day that there's a new trade rumor, and I just got I gotta wonder how that you know damages or how that affects team dynamics. I'm sure players will say they shut it out. But let's just ask the player right now. Dennis Schroeder is joining us on the line. Dennis, uh, we're having this conversation just now about just, uh, you know, what trade rumors do for players. When you're trying to compete, you're trying to actively, you know, play as a team, but you see trade rumors every single day. How do you guys shut that out? How do you guys process it? How do young guys deal with it versus veterans? I'm just curious because there's obviously a ton of speculation when it comes to trade at this time of year. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a big deal for me. I mean, after my 11th year, just uh, knowing the business side of it, at the end of the day, nothing changes, though. You know, I mean, you're in a different city, of course. Uh, but, I mean, your salary, everything stays the same. You can still, you know, um, be there for your family. And um, at the end of the day, uh, nothing really changes. You still get to play, you know, basketball. So, uh, for me, um, it's, it's, it's always... Uh, I mean, the NBA makes it kind of like a, you know, like an event, I feel like. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, it's just, it's just normal. Was there ever a rumor that came out about you that you knew was not true, but then it just catches fire on social media, for example? Um, because, again, I imagine with so much reporting around this time of year, a lot of things got to be wrong. I mean, I got traded once, and that was, uh, I think, one and a half years ago, and... I think uh, 11, I've been, I've been in a league now 11 years and probably 10 of them uh, was uh, trade uh, talks. <laughs> oh, wow. So at the end of the day, it's um, just people, you know, try to be a social media, try to be interested and uh, or interesting and um, just putting stuff out there. Do you, I mean, I guess it's going to be different for every person and I wonder how much you as a vet 
you know, if this stuff comes up with your, your current team, but do you also take it as like, or do you guys take it as a compliment? Like, Hey, there's a, there are a bunch of teams out there that would want me on their team. Um, obviously I think everyone would probably like to stay where they are and win with the group that they're with. But does any part of you in years past be like, yeah, these, all these winning teams want me on their team. Of course they do. I mean, as a player, you probably, you know, um, know who, who is interested and who needs, uh, you know, what in what position. I mean, you, I mean, I watch all the games, you know, and uh, I'm sure all the, or half of the league on, you know, watch all the NBA games. And um, at the end of the day, for me, it's, it's where I'm at, you know, beginning of the season, that's where I want to be. And I want to be successful there. And um and I'm not really into, you know, the, the trade talks and um, because it's just uh, hot air, you know, people just making, um, taking names and saying this can happen. And I'm just not a, a real fan or a big fan of it. Um, and I just try to focus on, you know, the business and uh, try to get better every single day. Yeah, I got you. I feel like it's got to be hard for team dynamics sometimes too because, you know, when you're one of those teams that everyone says, you know, they might blow it up or whatever, it's just a lot of noise, a lot of distraction around the team. Hard to keep everyone on the same page. But let's talk about yesterday's game. Uh, you guys unfortunately lose to the Celtics. I thought defensively you guys did well. I think defense has been something that you guys have been struggling a little bit um, since losing OG in the trade. You guys played really well defensively. You guys just couldn't hit any threes. Um what are you seeing in terms of the Raptors' defense right now? Like, how do you guys get to the next level where you guys are consistently, like, a, a really good defense that allows you guys to, you know, be competitive and, and start to put together a winning streak? Yeah, I mean, rebounding, you know, transition, getting back, uh, make sure we are the swing on the defensive end, all five people who is on the court. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it starts with, uh, you know, the five on the court, but then... Like I always uh, always say, everybody, you're just being engaged, even on the bench, um, cheering on and um, being motivated. And uh, I think uh, last last game was pretty good. Uh, I mean, against one of the best uh, teams in the league and who is, you know, going to make a good one uh, this year. But I think um, it's, it's uh, a couple of minutes in the game where we, you know, give up easy ones and um, just second chance points is easy um, transition here and there, two, three or two threes in the corner. And um, I think uh, always the 48 minutes is, is always important um, just to be engaged for 48. And um, I understand it's a, you know, NBA is a games of runs as well, but um, just to be engaged and um, try to do it for 48 as best as possible. So on the other end last night, um, it, you know, like you said, you guys kind of did a, a pretty good job defensively against that Celtics team. Offensively, you guys shoot four of 32 uh, on three-point shots. And that's, uh, you know, that's a tough night. In the current NBA, like we're in 2024, we know the Celtics take 43s a game and hit a lot of them. Um what is that like when the team is kind of cold? Like, is it just the, is the mentality just you got to keep shooting them if they're good shots? Do you start to think, well, I got to get inside the arc a little bit more? How do you guys approach that when, when the shots aren't falling? I mean, for me, it's always the same. Uh, me as a player, uh, when I'm open, of course, I'm a shooter. Um, I'm working on it every single day. Can't control if they go in or not. I mean... Um, but at the end of the day, I'm just being aggressive. Um, I like to go to the rim, 
and find a, you know a balance of uh, the game and I fill out the game as well you know and um, um, I mean last night was a really really uh, big struggle for us uh, shooting threes but I think it was all great threes um, it wasn't nothing was forced uh, it was all wide open um, and I mean uh, we just gotta, you know, be better and um, keep shooting them, keep trusting it, trusting our work, uh, be confident in our shots. But um, I think we still could have won the game. You know, always tough, you know, when you miss a lot of threes. But at the end of the day, we had a couple of possessions where we didn't, you know, we gave them free ones. And I think we was close at the end. I think we came within three or six Um and there's still a you know one or two possession game, and um, if you box out and they're not you know getting a second chance points for a wide open three, um, that's that's the stuff we can control. We can control if the 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 uh, three you know go in, but I I think we can control that we play defense and get a stop, and uh, that's what we gotta head our head on. We just gotta make sure we on the defensive end we locked in and we getting stops and can win ball games with you know our defense so defensively again last night you guys did a, a pretty good job you kept them off the offensive glass this is not a question about last night but more over the last week in general um dark head coach darko ryakovich said the other day at practice that what the team's numbers say internally is that Jakob is like a top five pick and roll defender at the center position um what have you noticed playing with Jakob this year defensively and how has that changed the defense with him out a little bit? Yeah, Yak is. Um, I mean, I always say it like he is. He is a, a great center in the league. You know, he is one of the. I mean, top ones. I love to play with Yak because he just don't care. Just uh, he just care about winning. And um, his mentality on the defensive end. He's our anchor. You know, uh, making sure on the defensive end. That you know, we talk on a pick and rolls. He's always doing a great job of um, being engaged and not letting the the roller get behind him and making big time plays. And then on the offensive end, he is great as well with his rolls and how he can pass and um, how he can finish around the rim. Um, he's just a special player, um, of course. Um, he's he, if he that he's not there is hurting us, um, obviously, but. Um, Yak is a phenomenal um, big man, and I, I I love to play with him. Yeah, um, clearly dark. Or you know, Jakob is missed um, defensively. He'll eventually get back into the team. You you are seeing Jonte Porter now breaking on and joining you guys midseason, and and even last night he got the start. Uh, what have you made of Jonte Porter and his this early in his career and how he stepped into the team? Yeah, not 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 bad either. I mean, I think it was a great start for him. Um, the last couple of games he played well, even coming off the bench. Last night's start was a little, you know, to play against the Celtics um, to start and um, got early in foul trouble. Didn't get us with him to uh, not get. Um, I mean, it was tough for him. You know, early two fouls, I think. Then he came back in, got four. So he didn't really get to, um, you know, get to play really um, in good stretches where he can catch his rhythm. But I mean, he spaces the floor, can shoot the three, got a good touch around the rim. I think Yak is going to help him a lot, you know, just 
helping him how he can defend um, pick and rolls and the people in the post. Um, I seen Dad Young today talking to him. So um, he got good vets around him, and I think he just got to keep going, keep working, and he's going to be all right. Dennis, you mentioned that that Celtics team, that's a tough matchup to throw Jonte Porter into there uh, for his first career start. This is a Celtics team you know pretty well. I know you were part of that team for a little bit uh, a couple years ago, and you're very friendly with with Jason Tatum still. Uh, You've seen them four times this year now. What do you make of where they are and how good that group can be? I mean, they've been in the finals, um, and I think... Uh, they added, um, you know, um, a guy with uh, Drew Holiday who was, I mean, first off a champ in this league, but who is uh, one of the best defenders um, in this whole league. And um, just making big-time plays in, in, in post-game, I mean, like, you know, in the playoffs, uh, postseason, like, he is just a different player. You always need a player like that. Then you got a Derek Wright. You got a, um, I don't I don't want to talk about Jalen and uh, Jason. I mean, that's them too. Then you added a KP, you know, Pozinga. So um, they really, really, um, really dangerous. Uh, everybody who is on the floor can shoot. Um, even Cornette when he comes in. I mean, he's not really known as a shooter. I remember his early years uh, in Chicago, like he spaced the floor, but he don't really need to do that. He just, you know, making sure uh, he contesting shots, catching alley-oops, playing the right way. Um, I mean, they they got a hell of a group over there. And, um, you know, I'm a big fan. I was a big fan when I was in Boston, of uh, Joe Mazzula, how he is as a coach. He was assistant coach back then, but me and him talked a lot. I didn't like what he did in Boston, though, with that challenge. <laughs> but um, I really, really respect him, and I told him that, I, you know, uh, it's nothing but love, um, and I'm wishing, you know, um, that they, you know, going all the way. And, um, of course, if we, you know, if we play against them, we, we want to uh, beat them still, beat them. Um, but uh, just being realistic, um, I think they, they got a really good, good chance to, you know, play there on top. So we, we saw on social media that, um, you know, you gifted Tatum your jersey, I think, uh, either before or after the game. And I think Tatum posted it on, on his social. There's already been a lot of reaction to this, I think, from a lot of Raptor fans thinking about, wait, hold on, you're wishing for them to to win the championship. But I think from your sentiments, it's you you have an attachment to that group because you played with them previously. And I do think that this kind of speaks to just the closeness of the NBA as a whole. But what do you think of that reaction from fans when they were like, wait, why are you rooting for another team to win the chip? I didn't, I didn't see that. Like I said, uh, social media is just people who just... Uh, they'll have nothing to do and just uh, just comment on stuff uh, at the end of the day. Uh, basketball is not everything to me, you know. Uh, I got a family, I got kids. Of course, uh, I'm always competitive when I get on the floor. I want to win every single game. It don't matter who we play. And uh, I'm the biggest competitor out there, you know. Um, and I just want to, you know, win games. Um, at the end of the day, though, uh, I know... Um, of course, we want to make the playoffs, and uh, I want to compete on the highest level. But at the end of the day, you still got to, you know, um, wish all your people who you played with before 
uh, wish them good luck. And um, I'm always a fan of uh, being supportive to everybody who I love. And I think if everybody would be like that, you know, the world would be in a better place uh, anyway. But um, I'm just, you know, supportive to everyone who I played with and who I got multiple, like a lot of respect for. And um, to put that on a jersey, um, I think it means a lot for him. He did the same thing too, you know, uh, signed his jersey, sent it to me. Um, and um, yeah, I'm just uh, a lot of respect for him and for the group. I think that's well said, Dennis. I appreciate you you sharing that side with us. You mentioned you do still want to play uh, playoff basketball as well. And if you guys are against them, you're, you're not going to feel that way, you know, if it's the if that ends up being the matchup. Um, I'm curious, this is obviously early-ish in the season still. We're at the halfway point here. When do you start to look at, like, what the standings look like with you guys right now, you know, close to the play-in bunch in, in the Eastern Conference and things like that? Do you start to look at it now? Do you, do you kind of leave that for later in the season? How do you feel about that side of things? I mean, right now, it's just still early. We still try to figure out our group. Um, we got two new guys in, you know. Uh, I think they sixth or seventh game uh, been played last night. Um, I mean, for me, it's always, like I said, um, I want to play in the postseason, you know, and uh, in the postseason, everything can happen. You know, anything uh, can happen. Last year, we got in the play-in, won the first game against the Timberwolves. I was with the Lakers last year and made it to the Western Conference Finals. So at the end of the day, um, for me, it's always I want to be in the playoffs. I want to be, you know, um, be competitive uh, when the postseason starts. And uh, we want to play our best basketball in March and April. And um, that's my goal here too. And uh, of course now, right now, it's, uh, it's 15 and whatever, 15 and 20 something. Um, but uh, it's, it's still early and uh, we just try to get better every single day. Yeah, you have been part of turnarounds. Um including last season with the Lakers, as you mentioned. And also, I like that you mentioned you guys beat the Timberwolves in the play, and I think I remember somebody hitting a three in, in a key moment in that game as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. But somebody, another uh, Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famer, <laughs> yeah. um, messed my messed my game winner up too. Uh, I can't <laughs> yeah. remember who it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He might have had a unibrow. Um, anyway, um, speaking of former teammates, it's just like, you know, you've talked about it. You, you've played with a lot of really good players in the past. And I think next time we get you on the show, we actually want to just go through, you know, all of these great teammates you played against, like, or played with Chris Paul, Shea, Westbrook, Paul George, Jalen Brown, LeBron, Tatum, AD, Al Horford, Paul Millsap, you know, Dwight Howard. There's just like a long, long list. I'm sure I'm just leaving a lot of guys out too. Um, but my point is that you've seen a lot of superstars and you've been a lot of super, around a lot of superstars in your time. When you're looking at Scotty in this in this run, and, and going back to last week when Darko won on his his, his post game rant against the Lakers, he slipped in there that he was like Scotty's going to be one of the faces of this league. When you see Scotty, um, you know, in his early uh, part of his career, do you see some similarities between what Scotty has versus some of these other superstars, like best player in the league type of players that you played with in the past? I mean, he's still 22. We can't forget that, you know. Um, when I was with Boston and I seen Jason Tatum, he was 
pretty young as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just came from the Lakers and uh, I gave him a lot of knowledge. And I think that's the reason why he really appreciates me. And I want to do the same for Scotty because I just seen so many people. Um, I mean, one of the best players who played this game and I was been, you know, I've been around them every single day and uh, see what they do on and off the court. And Scotty, um, he's just a winner. Like he wants to win and uh, he do everything, you know, whatever it takes to win a game and uh, he going to give it his all. And um, I think he is um, in a good spot where, you know, organization want to like put him into in the right situation, right position. And um, I think uh, he needs um, a lot of, you know, not assistance, but just people who can, you know, push him forward. And um, he is he's, he's um, doing a great job even this year. You know, it's not showing right now and we're not, you know, winning on a, on a high level. But I think uh, when we get our stuff together, it's going to be um, it's going to be great and it's going to, you know, be shown. But coach wasn't lying when he said he is, you know, one of the um, future faces of this league. I think he can be for sure um, uh, three, four, five, you know, it's going to because we got so many talented guys in this league uh, who's going to be, you know, the faces of this league. But he is uh, for sure one of them. Yeah, well, Dennis, I appreciate you giving us a lot of your time. And, uh, you know, I, I also, you know what, last question. How was the adjustment coming back from uh, spending last week in L.A. and this week in Toronto is minus 10? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I, we came back and it was snowing and uh, it was tough. I mean, we was in L.A. riding the bike on the beach. I know. And then uh, we coming back. But uh, for me, like I said, I'm from Germany, yeah, so... You um, I'm kind of used to it yeah. and um, kind of like it too, you know. Um, it's uh, different than just 365 days of uh, sun. Yeah, who would want that anyway? Um, <laughs> Dennis, I appreciate you, and uh, we'll call you again next week. Oh, I appreciate it, man. All right, Dennis Schroeder. Um, yeah, you know, uh, like, yeah, like we said before, even teeing this up, just like there was a lot of reaction to it. Um but we did ask him, and it's hearing his perspective is interesting. I think, again, there is something to be said about you're around a lot of great players, and you just want to pass some of that knowledge on. There's something that a lot of NBA players speak about in terms of the brotherhood, in terms of just passing that game from, like, one generation to the next. And I'm not saying that, like, Dennis is the only guy who can do that, but the fact that he wants to participate and try to help these things on, even getting an understanding of why him and Tatum are close uh, was kind of, you know, interesting to me. because. Yeah. Again, like, so much about this game is relationships. Yeah, know? and, like, I, I get it. There are some people who want, you know, the the last dance style, every competitor, like, hey, you see another star in, in the back hallway and you call him curse words as you shake his hand. Um, talking about Larry Bird song. Yeah, uh, but I can't yeah. say that on air. We've already had one uh, curse word on the uh, show today. Worry. we got to be careful. Um, I, I get that, but that's not the reality of this, especially with all the player movement and how well players get to know each other now. So I think, you know, it's good timing that Dennis was able to come on today and yeah. provide that perspective that, hey, yeah, obviously if we're head-to-head -head against them, I want to beat them. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a level of realism there about the fact that the Raptors are yeah, currently yeah. 12th in the Eastern Conference and the Celtics are first and the Celtics just swept the season series against them. And someone who, you know, he considers a friend and respects a lot professionally, he would like to see do well. Maybe just Jason Tatum doesn't put that quote on the 
visible part of social uh, media I mean, in the future. He because even said it on the sh- with us, though, you know? Yeah, I know. It's uh, yeah. Fans are going to react how, it, how, how they want to react, and, and I understand that part of it, but mm. I, I really do think it's just the, like Dennis laid it out. It's a, it's a relationship thing and a wanting your people to, mm. to succeed kind of thing. Uh, we also talked to Dennis about Scotty Barnes being an all-star. Yeah. Which brings us to... Which brings us to uh, an ad read that is in the rundown that I somehow not read not until a, this point. A ad so read. I, I, it's a giveaway. It's a this. giveaway. You're right. You're right. It's it's for you guys, not for me this time. Uh, anyway, the NBA All-Star Game is a month away, and uh, you still have the chance to vote your favorite Raptors into the game, such as Scotty Barnes. Uh, send them to Indianapolis. Uh, vote today, and remember that on Friday, January 19th, so this Friday, your vote will count three times. So make sure you head to NBA.com or NBA app to cast your vote. To celebrate all-star voting, we are giving away a signed Scotty Barnes jersey. Not the one behind Blake. That's that's not the one. There's a different one. It's signed by the Scotty Barnes. jersey that's crumpled up with 40 hockey uh, jerseys over there that we throw up when we forget to change the jersey. Yeah, I got a hoop run later tonight. I might have to borrow that one. Uh, you know, Sorry in advance to work. Uh, You're gonna roll up to your your hoop game in your Garrett Temple and throw on the Scotty Barnes. <laughs> you know what I'm actually gonna roll up to the game with? I'm actually gonna roll up to the game with a with a Grady Jack, the the gold one. Oh, OVO gold. the gold member. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry for the giveaway. To enter for a chance to win said sign Scotty Barnes jersey, text today's code word Scotty to five ninety five ninety. Again, today's code word is Scotty. Text us in to five ninety five ninety right now to enter for your chance to win a signed Scotty Barnes jersey. Producer, hit that Scotty Barnes drop for me, please. Nope. <laughs> we going to commercial, Will. Scotty Barnes. There we go. go. Derek, I knew you would come through, buddy. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, thanks to Dennis for joining us again. And uh, I'm your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptors Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wayne Blue, joined by co-host Blake Murphy for... Segment for uh, we're gonna go around the NBA um, in just a bit, but I did want to take a little bit of time to follow up on um, some of the things that Jake had said because I was listening to the interview that you guys had pre-recorded, and like I wanted to get your thoughts on some of these. So one of the things that Jake said was Pascal Siakam and Dejounte Murray will be the two best players available at this year's trade deadline. Zach Levine and his very expensive contract is going to make it cumbersome for a team to move him or even for Chicago to get full value uh, on him in return. What do you think about Pascal and DeJounte? I mean, if they're both available, any chance they get spun into the same trade? Yeah, I I actually, uh, I think I I was DMing, someone DMed me about this the other day, and my bold prediction was actually that if they get dealt, it's in a giant four-team deal where both of them are involved. And that's not because... Murray is going to come to Toronto or Pascal is going to go to Atlanta necessarily. But when it comes to trying to make trades with big contracts, 
unfortunately part of the trade discussion, even though the people only care about the main asset that comes back, a big part of this is how do you make the cap math work? And weirdly enough, that gets it gets more complicated, but it gets easier if you bring other teams into it, which is how you end up with like when the Raptors got Heydu Turkoglu and it was a four team like triple sign and trade mm. uh, to eventually get out of that contract. It, like it, it's yeah. um, it gets more complicated, but the more layers to a trade that get added, the more like little cap wrinkles and loopholes mm -hmm. you find yourself into. So um, if you are Atlanta and you are looking to move on from DeJounte Murray and it's a picks heavy package, say that you're taking back and you need someone to help the cap math work. And this is part of my issue with the Pistons Wizards trade happening yesterday is that, yeah, Marvin Bagley could have been helpful in a situation sure. like that. And yeah. maybe you get rid of him for free by yeah. just facilitating without giving up two second round picks. Um, I just, my, my radar is always on. You never know who the extra two teams that are going to get thrown yeah. in are, but yeah, my bold prediction is that they end up uh, getting traded in the same giant multi-team trade. The Zach Levine part of that was more interesting to me mm. because I've kind of operated under the assumption that all the negativity we've heard about Zach Levine over the last couple of months is coming from teams who would like Zach Levine and would like the market Probably, to be yeah. lower. Um, I do. Lakers looked really good last night, but I do wonder if they revisit that just because the offensive punch he'd bring to a team that really needs offense. And mm -hmm. if you're the Lakers, you don't have to worry as much about cap flexibility as other teams because the Lakers and the heat are kind of the teams that just like, they always find a way and there's always, they're, they're always fine with mortgaging future stuff. Yeah. And you're always able to find your way into guys that want to play there. Um, How do the Lakers get him? So would it be like D'Angelo Russell and then Rui Hachimura that gets yeah. you to 33 million, I think. And then you probably have to toss in like a Gabe Vincent. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. This, it might be one and, of those. And this is where that has to probably end up being a multi-team deal because all those guys you just mentioned have long-term money and yeah. Chicago probably doesn't want exactly. just that back. And the Lakers yeah. only really have the one unprotected pick that they can dangle, which is a really nice asset to have. Mm. Um, like, anyway. I don't even think the Bulls can get Reeves in, a, in, a, in that kind of deal. No, it'd be counterproductive I, for the Lakers to do that. Yeah, and we the the Reeves side of this is going to be interesting because we also had um, uh, Dan Wojcicki report today uh, or yesterday rather that, um, and this was talking about a couple of Dejounte Murray things. So first of all, Dennis Scott had mentioned on air that the Lakers, Knicks, and actually the Spurs were teams interested in Dejounte Murray. So uh, hmm, the Spurs, okay. Murray and Popovich are apparently really close. Weird. The Spurs were all will obviously. Didn't he like talk badly about the Spurs on the way out? Maybe. I mean, a lot of guys yeah. did with, the, with respect to injury stuff. and um, But Fair I don't enough. know. Yeah. I, I seem to remember he hopped on, I think, Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson on okay. the podcast. All the smoke. And, yeah, pretty sure DeJounte Murray talked bad about this person. I'm going to look okay. it up because I, I, I want to substantiate. Yeah, I mean, look, even if he did, we've seen uh, unlikelier reunions uh, in the past, especially mm -hmm. when you drop Wemby into it and then... You know, I think he's probably not had the best time in Atlanta. Plus, the Spurs, you get the nice thing. If you traded him at the peak of his value, you get him back for less value mm. uh, when he fits your timeline better. Um, anyway, so within this, Dan Wojcicki said, um, and this started as Dan Wojcicki talking about how the Hawks were involved on Emmanuel quickly and how the Hawks wanted quickly in a first for DeJounte Murray. So the Raptors got quickly the best second in the draft and took on R.J. Barrett for OG, Precious, and Malachi. The Hawks would have wanted quickly in a first for DeJounte. Um, the expectation would be that if the Hawks put DeJounte on a trade and the Lakers were interested, that mm. Austin Reeves is who they'd want back. And this isn't Dan Wojcicki's reporting. This is me now. Um, the thinking around the league, and most of the reporting has been like, the Lakers aren't going to put Austin Reeves on the table. Yeah. But 
when it comes down to it, it's the Lakers and it's LeBron and you're in ultimate win now mode. Austin Reeves is really good and on a really good value contract, but like, would you not, if it comes to it, maybe Zach Levine's not the guy for it. He's maybe not maybe it's me. not DeJounte Murray, yeah. but like the Lakers would trade Austin Reeves no matter what they say if yeah. the right thing came along, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, for sure. But I mean, I think it had to be for like a super established all-star. Like a level even above Zach Levine. At which point, I don't even know if you can make a trade happen. Yeah, I don't know if there's a level. Like, obviously, Zach Levine mm-hmm. is the certainly the biggest name star that we're talking about here. Uh, yeah. You could argue that Pascal and or DeJounte are better than him at this point. Mm-hmm. That kind of depends how much you weigh different styles of offense versus defense and things like that. Um, Here's the... Okay, so pivoting off of that, uh, because he also talked a lot about the Pascal situation. Um, this is... For me, I feel like... It, so much of the reporting comes back to the idea that Pascal may or may not be willing to give assurances to teams that he signed or traded to that he will re-sign there. Therefore, it's difficult for the Raptors to get full value. We've heard iterations of this, honestly, for like months now to the point where it's like you hear it every single day. It like wears on you. It makes you tired. Even though nothing has tangibly changed, you're just getting bombarded by the same news every day. Putting that aside, if the Raptors are determined to trade Pascal Siakam, why not go to the representation and just say, we're going to move you. Give us the teams that you would like to hit in free agency. We will deal with them now so that we can orchestrate for you to that team that had their your bird rights. And then we can actually get something of value back. Otherwise, every conversation is just like a half, you know, baked conversation where it's like, you want Pascal? It's like, well, we don't know if he'll resign, so we're not giving you much. And then you don't go anywhere with the trades. And then you just have this every single day. So I'm pretty cynical about how much any of this actually matters. So okay. here, here is why that is the case for me. First of all, all right. so there are three parties involved, right? They're the Raptors, they're the team that's going to trade for Pascal, and then there's Pascal's camp. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm the Raptors and you ultimately reach the decision that you're going to trade him yeah. and not resign him, as much as you don't want to do the player dirty, you have an obligation to get the best return you possibly can. Mm-hmm. If Now, look, if you want to be like, we're not going to send him to Detroit because he's meant too much to us and we owe him that, Cool. If you are deciding between a Kings offer and a Mavericks offer and you like the Mavericks offer better, but Pascal would slightly like prefer to be with the Kings, I don't think you can really weigh that all that much. Mm. So that's the Raptors side of it. If I'm Pascal's camp, so that's the second side, I could tell you who I would prefer to go to but or who I might intend to resign with. But none of the teams acquiring me can sign me to an extension right now that I'm going to sign. Mm-hmm. So no matter what, I'm going to free agency. I'm going to free unless, agency unless Toronto, unless he extends right. with if, Toronto. If I get traded, yep. I am going to free agency, mm-hmm. and it would be a disservice to myself to not at least see what's out there. And if you're only going, if the team that trades for me is only willing to offer a three year max, or uh, the the team is going to offer me a four year deal, but it's sub max, I have every obligation to myself. Basically, this is the last time he'll cash in as a major free agent player. Like, maybe he goes in again at 33 or 34, but it won't be as a max level guy. By the way, Mike Brown got uh, fined $50,000. He got a double Darko. It just came down from the NBA. A double Darko. Um, So that's the Pascal side. I just, like, I could tell you where I might prefer right now, but I'm Mm -hmm. trying free agency since I'm headed there anyway. The third part is the team acquiring him. And if I'm that team, yes, in reality, it would absolutely be helpful to know that Pascal would be open to re-signing. Okay. From a position of negotiating and leverage. 
I am telling you as the Toronto Raptors, that does not matter to me at all. I can't sign him to an extension. So no matter what, I'm negotiating with you as if this is rental mm-hmm. because any potential re-signing of him is just a is just like a handshake agreement that he can't deliver on anyway. So I think all but three dude, parties... that happens all the time, though. It does, but yeah. there are also times where that doesn't happen, where a guy gets traded and you think he's going to re-sign and he doesn't, or James Harden gets a promise from Daryl Morey and then it doesn't come through. I just think all three party, all three sides of this, it makes sense for all three sides to play up the importance of it. I get why a team acquiring him would care. I get why the Raptors would care by doing him right. I get why Pascal would want to be somewhere he wants to be. But end of the day, if there is a good, tra- if the Raptors decide to trade Pascal Siakam and there's a good trade package on the table, I think that that trade will happen and Pascal will go to free agency no matter what because that's the situation we're in. We're past the deadline for that. Uh, and the team acquiring him will, yeah, hope to convince him to stay but not be naive that he could potentially walk. So I think we're just too late for this stuff to matter. So, okay, two things. It's a matter a lot. Sorry, it matters a little bit. But we're too late for it to matter a lot. On the first point about it being too late to matter, if it's too late to matter, does that not mean that this has been, to some degree, mismanaged? I mean, we'll see where the the actual trade returns are, but I've been in the camp all year that, like, you should have... If you weren't going to trade him in the offseason, you should have extended him so that yeah. now you would be dealing with, well, he's trade eligible again and there's contract certainty. And like, yep. yeah, maybe there's a little bit of the Zach Levine of like, ooh, don't know about picking up that contract long term, but at least you would know then. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't, because the thing that hangs over this that makes it extra difficult for the Toronto Raptors is we just went through this with Fred Van Vliet. Yeah. And they thought that the, as a backup, like, oh, we don't want to send Fred to a bad situation. We didn't get the offers that we liked. Worst case scenario, we have his bird rights. We'll sign and trade him. Didn't even sign a trade him. You're right. So my point is you could have foreseen all of this. Like we could have told you this in the summertime. Um, Most people could have told you this in the summertime that are following the situation closely. So the fact that it was unresolved and you get to this point, I guess the part B of this is just like we could put aside all this. It's, It's interesting in terms of game theory. You have these three parties and they can move in different ways or whatever. I'm taking all the the judgment out of this too because I don't even necessarily think that, you know, there has to be too much morality that comes into this. I also think it's pretty important to say this because it doesn't feel like most people hear this, but Pascal has earned free agency. Oh, yeah. By virtue of his contract. This stuff is collectively bargained, man. If he chooses to go to free agency as somebody who has given his very best to the Toronto Raptors, nobody should hold that against them, even if it quote-unquote holds back the trade value. That's the GM and the president's job from the Raptors to get the most value from that situation. So I just wanted to put that to be clear. But putting all that aside, how do the Raptors actually get the most value out of this deal? If you were the Raptors right now and you want to get the best return for Pascal Siakam, what's your course of action? You grind it down to February 8th. Okay. You see the offers you have right now, and that's a baseline. Like, mm-hmm. let's, we don't know that this is 100% on the table, but the presumed framework that looks something like Harrison Barnes, Kevin Herter, Davion Mitchell, and a future protected first round pick or whatever, whatever the specific thing was. You have that. You know what the Atlanta Hawks were willing to offer in the offseason or were not willing to offer. You have surely talked to the Dallas Mavericks, the Golden State Warriors, a bunch of other teams. You have all of that. But what you are doing now between over the next 24 days is you're waiting to see if any of those teams get more desperate because any contract negotiation you're going to have with Pascal about re-signing or extending or whatever, at this point in the game, you may as well just wait for February 9th. You may as well wait until after the deadline. So you are sitting here and you are waiting for another team to be desperate. You're still canvassing the league and seeing what happens. You're maybe a little bit hoping DeJounte Murray gets traded 
before the deadline so that that is a part of a, a you know someone who doesn't get DeJounte Murray gets a little more desperate okay. um, maybe right. even but different players though I mean, they, they are but yeah. I more mean like if you're looking at who's stacking like who, who's the best team in the west mm-hmm. suddenly this team has DeJounte Murray now okay. even though Pascal's a different position and other teams like we got to make a counter moving and get to that level as well so I think you're hoping on that a little bit we got a new camera angle we're working in today uh, I keep noticing out of the side of my eye um, so I think that's it your your obligation at this point is to get the best possible return package and I think from the Raptors perspective to them that means what is the best single piece back we can get in a deal who is the best prospect who is the you know if they go the pick route what is the most unprotected and likeliest to be toward the top of the draft kind of pick it is not which team's willing to throw us five mediocre assets so that we have five assets okay I agree with you I'm not looking to see uh, yeah, like, you know, four quarters, four dollar kind of situation. Right, like you're not going um, back to the Kings with that framework that we just mentioned and be like, yo, three, throw in Keon Ellis. Yeah, exactly. Like, even if you like Keon Ellis, that's not the point. The point is turn Davion Mitchell and Kevin Herter into Keegan Murray or we're not talking, and that's not going to happen, but those are the kind of things that you're you're trying to make happen between now and the eight. Out of all these, like, quote-unquote, untouchable, because it is funny. Every team is lining up to say who's untouchable. Austin Reeves, untouchable. Taylor Horton Tucker, untouchable. Yeah, out of all these quote-unquote untouchables, um, is there one that you would like to see the most come back in this potential? I mean, I think trade? it's probably Keegan Murray at this point. Like, okay. if you had asked me in the summer, it was Jalen Johnson from the Hawks, but I actually mm. believe he's untouchable from the Hawks. I think now. he's untouchable. Man. Yeah, he's I, closing games. He's making every single play for the He's, like, games. getting seven assists and a half now. Like, he almost had a five-by-five five in the he's first really half good, the man. other day. <laughs> yeah, he's really good. Um, uh-huh. So I think you've missed the window on that. Then again, I kind of also thought you had maybe missed the window on quickly, and they got him. But yeah, yeah, um, sure. So I think Keegan's probably the top of the – list i don't think it's going to happen though mm-hmm. i also think the hawks losing so much i think probably pushes them in a different direction it should but the i've i've thought the hawks were bad for years and they disagree so mm-hmm. like you know what you could get for bogdan bogdanovich at the trade deadline right now i probably like two first yeah if you're the hawks shouldn't you do that that's true i mean they did change management so i don't yeah. think they're like against pulling some of the things down that they have built yeah, does Landry Fields' from- wrist still have the hitch when he goes to text another GM, like when he's trying oh, to shoot a three-point shot? I hope not. He's, he's sending us texts. He's negotiating through his PS Vita he do have from his- back in the day. We'll see if he'll come on post-deadline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just hit up Landry. Yeah. Um, For me, in terms of that most valuable, like, piece, it's not I – don't, I don't think that, like, Matherin is a better prospect than Keegan. I don't – there's no evidence – at least just in NBA time, that would say definitively that Jairus Walker is a better prospect than Keegan Murray because we've seen a lot of Keegan. We haven't seen Jairus at an extended time I in the like NBA. I do like Jairus Walker, though. But if you can get two of those guys, if you get me two of Matherin, Walker, and Nemhard, two of those guys, mm-hmm. I would be I would be pretty happy. Yeah, I think so. Now, I guess the question... That's my preferred. That's my preferred. I'm not as worried about immediate fit because like the Raptors should be in talent acquisition mode right now and figure, figure like, like obviously uh, as a, as a tiebreaker, you want something know. that fits with Scotty, like, but you, you want the best player. You're, you're, not, you're not trying to bring about another power forward who doesn't shoot very well. Right. So what I was yeah. going to ask though is uh, say, say the Pacers are like, yeah, we'll give you two of those. It's Nembard and Matherin. And you just picked up quickly in Barrett. No. Is that a little too guard heavy for you? Or where do you land on the, the positional spread? Um, Walker, I think, is clean. Like, you can play him. Yeah. I also think Walker, for example, it's funny when the, the, the Pacers mentioned is untouchable. I mean, who knows? Maybe he is truly untouchable. But 
you're about to acquire the all-star player who would play in that position for the bulk of the minutes for a guy who's not actively contributing to your rotation right now. Jairus Walker has played 127 NBA minutes. Yeah, and like whatever. Maybe in the future he turns into like Giannis or something. That'd be amazing. But like realistically right now, it's like you are acquiring somebody who would block his path. And yeah, I mean, he's not currently contributing. It's like a very obvious kind of trade to make. He's good though. He is good. I like him. Yeah. If you're the Pacers and you're listening, he, he, if yeah, if you're the Pacers and you're listening, he sucks. Uh, he's been underwhelming in the G League. It's sure, just potential. Yeah. Um, but if you are the Raptors and you're listening, he rocks and you should go get him. But I mean, yeah, to your point about the Matherin and, and Nemhart thing, I mean, for the Raptors to have like five, four playable guards at that point, mm-hmm. five with Dennis still around, yeah. I think you can actually do a lot of cool things. You, and, and you can term, figure it you out. I would you're, ideally like to have another one forward, one guard. Yeah, you're better yeah. off having more guards than too few. Uh, so I just wondered how much that that matters yeah. to you. And this is where like like Keegan Murray was like tagged as kind of a, a guard, but he's got enough size and defensive versatility that you don't really worry yeah. about uh, worry about that. I don't need, and like Sacramento doesn't really use him as a as a true guard guard sure. anyway necessarily. Matherin's um, had so, some yeah. he's he's had some really he's had a really nice run here. Um, he's he's he can kind of be hot and cold. He can sometimes be a bit of a black hole offensively. I feel like, but he's also such a tough shot maker. Like, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, it's it would be fun to see him as a Raptor, but we'll see. I mean, we'll be asking this question for the next, I don't know, month, less than a month, I guess, until the trade deadline. So, um, anything else you want to talk about? Oh, Pistons uh, beat the Wizards. Yeah, you think it was part of the trade package? <laughs> you got to let us win on Monday. Oh, that's what a sad game. Um, do you think they just dropped the players off as part of the like? You know what? We'll we'll consummate this trade yeah. once the once we come to your town for for the game. None of them played. So I don't know. Completely uh, inconsequential, man. Yeah. Um, I uh-huh. guess so. We got pretty caught up in the rooting for the Pistons to break the streak kind of thing. And, and part of that was like, you didn't Not against want the Raptors. You didn't want it to happen against the Raptors and things like that. Are you now like the difference between like the 31st and the 33rd pick isn't that dramatic or whatever, but like it's getting pretty tight at the bottom of the standings. You firmly no, no, like no. the Pistons got to finish dead laps. The Raptors get 31. Okay. Absolutely. I want to see a team. Finish with like nine wins on the season, which I believe is what the Pistons are. Uh, the Pistons are on, on pace, pace for less. Well, you can't get a fraction of a win, but they're yeah. closer to on pace for eight wins than nine wins. Okay, there you go. That's and then the Spurs and Wizards are both on pace for 14 wins, and the Hornets are on pace for 17. The Spurs is funny, too, because it's like, I feel like if they just played Victor 35 minutes instead of 25 minutes, they would get so much better instantly because he just takes over things, man. Like, I was watching, like, the fourth quarter of uh they were trying to make a comeback against the Hawks last night and whatever, they were down big, so they couldn't make the whole comeback. But, like, when Victor just turns it on the fourth quarter, it's terrifying. And I just feel like, yeah, I mean, he's only playing, like, 20 couple minutes right now because his minutes are capped. Like, I, it's got to be so frustrating because in those 20 minutes, he's about as productive as anybody in the league right now, which is kind of nuts to say. Yeah. Um, okay, last one for me from last night. There's a loaded slate tonight, by the way, if yeah. Jokic and Embiid play. Mm. Uh, so that would be a lot of fun to talk about tomorrow. But the Warriors got Draymond back last night. Yeah. And then the Memphis hustle pumped <laughs> them. GG Jackson, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 23 points. Actually, right. GG Jackson came up in my conversation with Jonte Porter for that feature okay. because he the game that his brother talked smack to, him yeah, yeah. at and like got him he, like Gigi Jackson's play. Oh, okay. Uh, for, nice. um, so, but Gigi Jackson's fascinating because he had like the worst freshman year you could have as a draft mm-hmm. prospect. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. still, uh, Sam Bassini wrote about this recently that like, hey, him coming back from that freshman year would be pretty historic. Vince Williams Jr., who they also just signed out of the G League, had a huge game in that one. Um, is this, this isn't the bottom for the Warriors because like they could go into Detroit, which is Draymond's 
home state and lose there or something like that. But this has got to be, you get Draymond back and lose to a G League team that lost. Clark, mm-hmm. Adams, Jaw, Bain, Marcus Smart, all yeah. those guys out for the Grizzlies and they beat you. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Warriors, like, they just don't hit rock bottom. Like, they got to hit, like, more and more bottoms, if it feels like. Because losing to the, the Memphis Grizzlies team right now is just really sad. Like, a lot of these guys people don't even know about, man. Like, you know, like Jacob Gilliard played seven or 19 minutes for he them off the He closed that game out last night. Yeah, like, you know, uh, Vince Williams Jr. Even most people don't know Gigi Jackson, who is, by the way, the youngest player in the NBA yeah. right now. He just turned 19 on December 17th. Like, he turned 19 three weeks ago or well, a little bit over three weeks ago now. Like, you should not be losing to this team. But, I mean, yeah, the, it's funny because Draymond's like, man, our defense really fell off a cliff. And it's like, dude, who do you... How do you think that happened, buddy? Yeah. How do you think that happened? You know who can beat Gigi Jackson? One of Raptors 905's wins this year wow. was against the wow. Memphis Hustle. And Gigi Jackson had a really bad game. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, tough. But uh, that does it for us today. Uh, been your host, Willow. You've been listening to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio. I had no transition Nothing. from Gigi Jackson. Make sure you find the Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review the show. Big thanks to Jake Fisher. Thanks to Dennis Schroeder. And thanks to producer Mark Boffel, Blake Murphy, our board producer Derek Brandale, Jennifer Ronick, David Sis, Jeremy Manitad. We'll talk to you tomorrow.